0: Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church Lagos. We hope this sermon answers the doubts or questions that you have about the gospel, its relevance to your life, and the ever-evolving culture around us. Our vision is to see the city of Lagos and beyond renewed by the gospel, and to make that happen, we need your support. You can do this by rating this podcast, following us, and giving through the Give tab on our website, citychurchlagos.com. Thank you for your generosity. We pray this sermon impacts you positively with the gospel. Good
1: morning church. It is good to be with you all this morning. Um, If we haven't had a chance to meet yet or if you're new or new-ish, um, we're always happy to have new people amongst us. And so my name is Emmanuel, and we have been in this series called, um, what's the series title again? You knew it. You knew It was a test. I forgot. It was called, it, um, we've been in um, this series called Made For More, and we're looking at what the Bible actually teaches about ambition. So last week, we saw that God has wired us, God has designed us as human beings to be people who actually aspire to be more. Um, and you sort of see that both in what God has made, but also what he has revealed in scripture. And so um, just think about yourself for a minute. The fact that you were born as a baby, you were the product of, you know, a, an egg being fertilized. And then you were in the womb for nine months. And then eventually you came out as a baby, couldn't utter a word. You were crying for every small thing. Eventually you grew. Um, you became, you went to nursery school, primary school, um, Um, From primary school, you skipped because you're very intelligent. You went to university, right? No, not quite. There was a process, but eventually all of those things contributed into you becoming the person that you are today. And so nature teaches us that God has wired us as individuals and as human beings to be made for more. But it's not just nature. It's also the fact that even in the creation mandate in Genesis 1, which is sort of... um, An anchor text that we we have been unpacking through this series, I will keep unpacking, is that God said to human beings to be fruitful and to multiply. And then to also watch over creation and to ensure that creation comes to its fullest potential. And so we see that God has designed us as human beings to be made for more, to be ambitious. And a key part that we looked at last week was that um, being ambitious or being all that God has designed you to be actually means that you dream. And so you have aspirations, you see things where they are now, but you also see them in where they can be and what they can become. And so last week we looked at made to dream. And so this week, if you like, is a continuation of that because if God has made us to dream, God has made us to um, bring things into existence that possibly weren't there before or things that didn't um, haven't fully utilized their, their potential, we dream. But to dream rightly and to see those dreams come to pass, we must take risks. And so today, we'll be looking at what I've titled, Made to Risk. And maybe as we hear that, particularly if you're in the business space, you're like, ah, made to risk care. Isn't that the thing that we're meant to avoid, right? We're meant to minimize our risks and then optimize our businesses in ways that actually we avoid risk and we walk towards the certainty of the outcome that brings us the highest results. Sort of but not quite. Not quite because even in business, right, the people who actually advance, and many of us know this, people who actually advance are people who are most prone to taking risks. And so some of you can um, rewind your mind to a couple of years ago, almost an age that seemed so far away when everybody was using BBM. There was a time when the, the cool smartphone was actually Blackberry. I never had a Blackberry, and I always wanted to have a Blackberry, but I just saw that it was addictive. But the whole concept was really fascinating, that you could have a small screen and you have a keypad that you could actually type things on. And I remember the first time I got a smartphone that didn't have a keypad, you know, that was attached to the screen, that was a touch type. Someone said, like, this is what, 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 how, how do you intend to use this? Like, this doesn't make any sense. And it was in the middle of that that a man called Steve Jobs decided that actually, I'm going to take a risk. We've tried this thing called the iPod, and people really liked it. Why don't we merge a music playing device with a cell phone and sell it to the world? At that point in time, you have to realize that that was a very, that was a gamble, really. It was a big risk. Because up to that point, people didn't, like, people weren't using smartphones that way, first of all. But then to, the idea that you could sort of integrate a keypad without actually seeing the keypad and all your phone would just be screened and you'd be typing on it was also revolutionary. And so he launched smart, the the iPhone, I think, in 2008. And for the first year, or for, for a while, it actually didn't do well. Like a lot of people were like, does this even have a future? But fast forward many years later now, iPhones constitutes about almost 20% of the global smartphone industry in the world. 20% of the global smartphone usage in the world. That is even more fascinating when you think or remember that, actually, Android is a type of device. Yes, now. It's like Dubai market. It's like everybody has an Android phone. Samsung is creating one. OPPO is creating one. I'm just saying, like, if you are not using an iPhone, you are not. You have not yet made it, sort of. But the point, I hope you are seeing the point. The point is that actually, <laughs> so, so I said no. <laughs> so he said no. But the point is that actually, that feat is actually really commendable, and it's mind-boggling when you think about the fact that iPhones are actually only made by Apple. It's not open source. It's not like other people don't make um, iPhones, the iOS devices. And so one company actually is taking 20% of the global global market share of, of smartphone usage in the world. Why? Because someone took a risk. And I like how Mark Zuckerberg, whom some of you may or may not like, says it. He says the biggest risk is not taking any risks. In a world that's changing quickly, the only strategy that is guaranteed to fail is not taking risks. And so just from a business perspective, right, if you are going to blow, if you want to make it, if you want to hammer, you need to take risks. But I will argue that it's not just from a business perspective, also from the scriptures. If you are going to be all that God has called you to be, if you are going to live the life that God has designed you, optimized you for, you need to take risks. I like how Pastor John Piper in the U.S. defines this. He says, risk is an action that exposes you to the possibility of loss or injury. And some of you are like, eh, Emmanuel? (laughs) Isn't that what we're supposed to avoid? But don't you see, friends, God hasn't wired us for a comfortable and safe life. God has wired us as people who are actually meant to explore. As people who are actually meant to create. As people who are actually meant to become more. And there is no becoming all of those things if we don't step out in faith, if we don't take risks and venture into the unknown. And so if you want to um, put together what this sermon today is going to be about, it's these two sentences. Apathy is your friend, but it should be your enemy. Taking risks is good, and you can be sure that it will succeed. Apathy is your friend, but it should be your enemy. Taking risks is good, and you can be sure that it will succeed. And to honor my dear friend, Damilola Adiremi, on Father's Day, those are my four points. Apathy is your friend, point one, but it should be your enemy, point two. (laughs) Taking risk is good, point three, and you can be sure that it will succeed, point four. But let's pray before we begin. lord jesus we thank you that you are enough for us in any stage of life that we find ourselves regardless of what is going on around us so lord we have come to look into the perfect law of liberty this morning the the law of liberty that frees us to become all that we can be to live the lives that you have called us lord we pray that you would open our eyes lord if there are any hard consciences here this morning lord people whose hearts are seared towards you or towards your purposes or your plans for their lives. Lord, we ask that you soften our hearts and, and prick our consciences. And Lord, we pray that as your word comes, um, whether exciting or no exciting, Lord, help us to be people who willingly receive. it. In Jesus' name we pray. Apathy is your friend. I wish I had time to explore, but really... Um, Like the whole of 2 Samuel 9, 10, 11 is a fascinating block. It's a fascinating block because it's actually showing us a series of events in the life of King David, who at this point has just ascended the throne of the kingdom of Israel and has now become rightfully what God had called him to be. You see, there was a prophecy that was given many, many years earlier. We don't quite know how long, but it took a while. Um, And... I just feel a prompting. Maybe there's anyone like that here. You feel like God has told you certain things and it seems like it's delaying in coming to pass. Just hold on. Be patient. Because the way God brings us into, where he brings us into, is not so much to just transport us into that destination, but to transform us as people who are ready for that place he's taking us to. Amen. And so 2 Samuel chapter 9 and 10 is a comparison of how you actually respond to King David. And in many ways, King David is representing God's elect or God himself. How do you respond to God? Again, like I said, I wish I had time, but we don't have time. But let me just show you um, verse 1 of chapter 9 and verse 2. I hope you can see this clearly. So in chapter 9 verse 1, David is asking, how can I show loving kindness? to um, the house of Saul because of Jonathan. In chapter 10, verse 2, David is asking, or is saying the same thing. I will show kindness to Hanon, son of Nahash, just as his father has shown kindness to me. And so what the narrator wants us to see is that these two blocks are actually a comparison of how you respond to the divine invitation. How do you respond to being shown loving kindness? And the word that's translated loving kindness or kindness there is a word called in hebrew hesed can we say that together hesed now you know some hebrew and that word there is 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 a word that depending on context could mean mercy could mean love it could mean kindness it could mean loving kindness it, it, it represents a number of things because it's so hard to pin down it's so hard to define exactly what this word means. But the idea is that you are showing someone something they don't deserve because of somebody else. And so David is saying here that I want to show Hanun loving kindness or to extend my right hand of friendship to him, not because Hanun deserves it, but because of his father, Nahash, who was my good friend. And so he extends that invitation to him. And so he sends his um, ambassadors and we are told that when these ambassadors from David get to Hanun, this new king he calls his counselor and he says how do we respond to this and they give him bad advice and some of us have bad friends in our lives who give us bad advice they give him bad advice and they say don't care about David. Do you think David is doing this thing because David actually cares about you? No, no, David's not doing this thing because he cares about you. David is doing this for some other purposes. If they had given him that advice and he had acted on it, it was bad enough. When the guy decides that he's going to show contempt to David, and so he decides to give them a haircut, except that this time, the haircut is not on their head, the haircut is on the beard. I don't know how to explain this to you. Um, there was a time when primary school, someone teased me last week and said, the man has this <laughs> primary school nursery school stories. Well, yes, I do have them. And there was this guy who, you know, he, these were the days when pretty much like now, like petrol prices were high. You didn't have, um, You know, a lot of people didn't have generators. Barber shops didn't have generators, and so they're cutting this guy's hair. You guys know where I'm going with this. They're cutting this guy's hair, (laughs) literally, as they're cutting his hair the day before school. So this was Sunday evening. School is on Monday. They take lights, and they didn't bring light back that night or the morning. And so this guy had to come to school with a face cap. But just imagine that actually the person that this thing happened to is not, is not that haircut is not because they took light. That haircut is because somebody actually doesn't like you and wants to put you to shame. And it is made worse by the fact that the person or the people that this thing has happened to actually are ambassadors of Israel to the Ammonites. It is like the um, ambassador of the U.S. coming to present his credentials to President Tinubu and then President Tinubu decides not only that we don't want the U.S. in Nigeria, but we are going to give them a haircut. Think about how, how really outrageous that is. But he doesn't stop there. He decides you guys both need a haircut and a garment change. And he doesn't cut it somewhere down He doesn't remove the rope of the Shokoto. He doesn't undo their zip. He decides that he's going to cut it at their butt. Contempt. And the reason why I think Hanon has done this, the reason why Hanon has done this is because he doesn't care about David. He doesn't care about his father. He doesn't care about his father's legacy. He doesn't care about the relationship between his father and David. He doesn't care about the relationship between his nation and Israel. He doesn't care. And if you want a definition of what apathy is, apathy is a lack of care or lack of concern about something. Just don't care. Many of us have heard it said many times that actually that the greatest offense you can give someone is not just to hate them. It's actually indifference. Indifference. You don't care. And maybe you're not a Christian here, and maybe how you've always thought of it is like, I don't have anything against Jesus. I don't have anything against Christ. I, I just don't care. Friends, that is exactly what apathy is. A refusal to take action or a refusal to take a certain kind of action because you don't care. And that's what we see Hanon doing here. And maybe some of us, you're like, wow, that is really bad, but that is not me. I want to argue, friends, that actually at the root of all the things we struggle with in our lives is a certain kind of apathy. Is a certain kind of a lack of concern. Is a certain kind of, I just don't care. Not really because it doesn't matter. Like if you had asked Hanon and said, Hanon, do you think that your father's legacy matters? He would have said yes. If you had asked him and said, is it important to preserve the peace between Israel and Ammon? He would have said yes. But when it came down to what he was supposed to do and how he did what he was meant to do, Actually, his priority was revealed that he just didn't care. And you see, friends, what actually keeps us from becoming all that God has designed us to be, all that God has called us to become, many times is that we're apathetic. We're apathetic towards God's purposes. We're apathetic towards the things that we should be concerned about. We're apathetic towards the life that God has called us to live. And maybe you're still saying, it's not really me. Let's look at verse 6. It says in verse 6 that when the Ammonites realized that it had become obnoxious to David, they hired 20,000 Aramean or Syrian food soldiers from those countries as well as the king of this land along with 1,000 men and also 12,000 men from top. But Do you see what's going on here? I thought that this was actually between Ammon and Israel. What are these guys doing here? But you see, apathy, what apathy does is that apathy allows us to outsource the things that we are meant to be doing to others. Apathy, because we don't care, because we really, really deeply, deep down don't care, About our lives or the things around us, about the things we're meant to do, about the things God has called us to do, about the people around us, we outsource those things to other people. So maybe there are some of us who would say, like, my kids are really, really important, really, really important to me. But could it be that you have outsourced their care to your domestic helps? Could it be that actually that your kids are being raised by these people that you have put in your life because I care about my kids, but like, ah, it's so tiresome. Toddlers are so annoying. They cry all the time. And so you have outsourced their care to these people who manage them for you. And then your kids can just fit in within your nicely scheduled life. Maybe some of you are hearing that and you say, Emmanuel, that is exactly why I don't have mates. That's exactly why I don't employ domestic helps because I need to raise my kids by myself. And to that, I say, oh, really? There are many of us who don't have domestic helps in our life, but could it be that we are allowing the iPad and our smartphones and our TV devices and all these things to actually raise those kids for us? You see, when God calls us to be more, the being more is not just in aspiring in our business places, in, in our work, in all those things, it's also in the spheres of influence that He has placed us in our parenting. But maybe there are some of you that are here that you've had this business idea that you should have acted on it a long time ago, but you haven't acted on it because really you have all these nice theories about all these economic decisions that are being made and all these things that are being done, but you actually, deep down, you haven't acted because you don't care. It pains me every Sunday, and I'm not trying to call anyone out, but it pains me every Sunday when the Word of God is going on. And many times, it is not that you have things to respond to from work. It is not that you are a doctor who is on call. It's not that those things can't wait for two, three hours. But sometimes, while the Word of God is going on and God is connecting with these people, some of us are just typing away on our smartphones. Some of us are responding to emails, things that we can rightly wait until two, three hours later to attend to those things. And friends, if you do not know, that is an exact designation of the fact that apathy is at work in your life. Let's go for GC. Let's go for GC. Yeah, I'll I'll make time. Let's go for prayer day. I'll make time. Let's study the Bible. I'll make time. And we have outsourced all those things rightly to to podcasts, which have their good place. We've outsourced those things to internet teachers who have their good place. We've outsourced those things that should actually matter to us. Those things we should take pains. Yes, it's slow. Yes, it's boring. Yes, we don't have all the tools, but things we should be doing ourselves, we have outsourced those things to others. You see, apathy always outsources to others what it should be doing by itself. Today's Father's Day. Could it be fathers, brothers, brothers? that some of us have outsourced the care for our wives and our families and our kids to others. Maybe we've outsourced it actually to the allowance that you send to show her that you care. But actually, what you have just done is that you have used money to replace the thing that you should be doing by yourself. Maybe some of us don't spend time thinking, oh, Kids came to, city kids, <laughs> yes, thank God, that part is sorted. Um, they go for lesson. that part is sorted. Um, they play with somebody else's kids, that part is sorted. And all we are just doing is minding our own business. Friends, please don't get me wrong, I'm not saying these things don't have their places, but the point, the deep point of apathy is that apathy, rather than doing the things that it is meant to be doing, apathy always outsources to other people. And so this was a fight that should have involved Ammon, and should have involved David. But rather than Ammon fighting, Ammon outsources to other people. We don't see Ammon in the fight that is actually about him. I, as I was prepping for this, and I just felt like this is really important because this is not so much just for you; it is also for me. I see the way apathy is at work in my own life. I see the way that many times I'm tempted when I should be doing something really constructive in my time. I'm yeah. surfing the web. I'm checking out something. And an hour is gone, and I come back, I'm like, where exactly was I doing? What exactly was I doing here? Apathy. And so I want us to take a look at this table. Maybe my help... Um, some of us, as we sort of reflect on this. I call it an energy outcome chart. Um, And so, wow, I should do more (laughs) press-ups. And so, um, yeah, so this is, is this x-axis or y-axis? I I was a bad master, I was bad. Let's just call it horizontal and vertical, how's that? and so you see, there's the certainty of outcome, less certainty of outcome. So that's really how sure am I that this thing's going to happen? How unsure am I that this thing's going to happen? Um, there's the energy. So low energy is apathy. The, and, and by that, I don't mean that I'm tired. I mean that my ginger to do the thing that I'm meant to do is really low. That's apathy. And then I have high energy, big energy, call it, um, is zeal. And so here, if you have... If you're very sure of how things are going to turn out, you're very sure of how things are going to turn out, but you actually have low energy. That's what I would call coasting. Coasting. And coasting here really is like, I'm good at this thing. Some of us know people like that. Like, they're very smart. They don't... You don't need to read extra. You don't... Like, the, the exact thing the teacher told us, they remember. They don't need to put in any extra effort. They don't need to top it up. I will get... What's the cut-off mark? Fifty. I'm, I'm ashamed to say that was how I made it through many things in school. But it's like, what exactly do I need to do? What is the bare minimum that I can do to get this thing done? I know how it to turn up, and so that's costing. Um, but then on the other side, you still have low energy. But I'm not quite sure how this thing will turn out. Or like, this thing is really hard. This thing is really difficult. This thing is really—I don't know what it looks like. I call that sloth. Sloth. And sloth really is, I think, is a biblical term. Many times we, we call it procrastination. We call it putting things off. We call it planning. You know, all of those things. But actually, what the Bible calls it is sloth. And you see, both Posting, the person who gets things done because they are aware of how it will turn out, and the person who doesn't do things because they are not sure of how it will turn out or because it's difficult, the person who is slothful, the person who is putting off things, the person who is procrastinating things, those things are, both of those things are deeply rooted in apathy. A lack of concern, a lack of care. And I like how, as I was preparing for this, there was... Um, Someone who who wrote a commentary on, on Proverbs. I, I like how he three things he identifies from the book of Proverbs about what the Bible calls the person who is on a path of of, of apathy. The Bible calls that person a sluggard. Three things. The sluggard in the book of Proverbs will not start things, he will not begin things. You can put that up. The, 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 the sluggard will not begin things, the sluggard will not complete things, the sluggard will not face things. That's the person who is apathetic. The sluggard will not begin things. The sluggard will not complete things. The sluggard will not face things. So in Proverbs, I think it's chapter, if you can have have that up, I think it's chapter 16. Yes, 6, sorry, 6 verse 9. It says that the sluggard lies in bed and he doesn't get up. Now, the way the book of Proverbs works is that many of the imagery, many of the imageries that it presents, they are not not exact. They They are meant to illustrate something. And so the sluggard is lying in bed. He will not begin things. He's like, oh, ah, man, this thing is really hard. This thing is really difficult. This thing is really intense. Let's try it next year. By next year, I would have put myself in a kind of space where I have enough energy to get those things done. He doesn't have a plan for how he'll get the energy. He doesn't have a plan for how he'll get those things done. But the sluggard will never begin things. Another one, the sluggard does not complete things. And so in Proverbs 19, verse 24, it talks about how the sluggard will, is so sluggish, he's so apathetic that he puts his hand in his bowl and he cannot even bring it up to put the food in his mouth. The sluggard will not begin things. The sluggard will not complete things. The sluggard will not face things. And so in um, Proverbs 22, verse 13, it talks about how the sluggard always says, there is a lion in the streets. Ah! I will be killed in the public square. And the idea there is no... No, there isn't actually a lion. But it is that this thing can be so dangerous, I don't know how it would turn out for me. The slugger does not begin things. The slugger does not complete things. The slugger does not face things. And the question, friends, in unmasking the apathy in our hearts is what are those things that you are not beginning? What are those things that you are not completing? What are those things that you are not facing? You see, every time we can talk about, oh, I don't quite know how this thing will turn out. I don't quite know where this thing is going to end. Or maybe I even know how it will turn out. But really, what is at the heart of it is that actually there is a lack of concern in our hearts. There is apathy that is fighting with us. Apathy is your friend. Apathy is your friend. Why are we often apathetic? Why is Emmanuel often apathetic? As I look at my own life and as I look at people that I have to relate with many times, I think part of the reason is that, friends, there is a lack of vision. There is no vision for our lives. Many of us are just drifting through. Many of us are just coasting through. I mentioned Mark Zuckerberg earlier, and there was an interview that he gave, I just saw this yesterday, nine years ago, almost ten years ago, and they were asking him, ten years ago they were asking him, what do you think the future of technology is? And he thought and said that he thinks that actually where technology is heading to is that there's going to be a need for having um I can't quite remember how he faced it, but he said something about the need for for answers that are more complex than what our um, search engines can provide. Basically, answers that are more complex than what Google and and Bing and all these things that we use as search engines can provide. Ten years ago, Mark Zuckerberg already saw a vision for what he could be doing with AI. Basically, that was what he was saying. 10 years ago the guy already knew this is where we should be headed and so they have taken all this risk and done all these things and maybe it has landed them in hot soup in some places like with the presidential election in the US but the whole thing was he was he had a certain path that he was headed to because he had a des- he had a vision and the reason why many of us are apathetic friends that we don't have vision or the vision that we have is not compelling enough to actually drive us. So why do we think that it will drive the people that we have employed? Some of us get to our business places and then we're always just firing our employees. You are lazy. You are sleeping. You are doing this. You are doing that. Our, our um, subordinates, the people in our team that are meant to manage. And the question that we really should be asking ourselves is have I cast a vision that is compelling enough for me as a person to actually run with? If I haven't done that, why do I think that people who are working for me will have more of the vision than I do them myself? A lack of vision. I think also sometimes it's because we have displaced the important things. And so we have, because we really love comfort so much, because we really love our security and our space so much, we have coasted and drifted. We have remained apathetic when there should be bigger things that should be driving us. Apathy. Is your friend. But it should be your enemy. Apathy should be your enemy. And so what we see in verse 6 is that this guy, Hanon, realizes, more, I have taken a wrong step. Who sent me message? Who sent me Job? Why did we do this thing? And so he hires these people to actually fight his battle for him. And what you see there is that apathy ultimately leads to foolish decisions. It leads to foolish decisions. But then in verses 7 to 8, David has... Heard what has happened, and so he sends his own men, he sends his people to fight, and he's responding with war. And so, you see, what has happened is that Hanon eventually has to act, but his acting or his action is only reactive, it is because somebody else has done something that's when he decides to act. And you see the apathy, like friends we're going to pray at the end of this because apathy is so, is so deep within us. Many times we don't see. it, And you see the apathy in Hanon's life in that even when he employs people to fight the battle for him, he, he still doesn't join them to go to the battlefront. Actually, when the only time you hear about Hanon later and the Ammonites later in this story that was originally about the Ammonites and the Israelites was when the threat of war actually got to their doorstep. At every other point, he was content. Some, people are, some other people are doing it for me. Some other people are minding, so I, I really don't need to get involved. And some of us have become stray bullets in other people's apathetic lives. Some of us actually, because we love people and we value people so much, we have entered into other people's businesses. And so what you see here is that the people who are known as em- em- employed to fight for him, they are the ones that now have to be dealing with A or more. David is actually powerful. We didn't know. But where is this guy that we're fighting for, self? Can't find him. Apathy should be our enemy. And here's why. Friends, I think, let me just give us four quick reasons why I think apathy should be your enemy. Apathy should be your enemy because it gives us an illusion of security. So the person who actually doesn't do anything, in the person's mind, is that I have not done anything. I have not taken any steps. I have not ventured out. And so nothing will happen. But the truth actually is that there isn't really anything like that. You see, what apathy does is that apathy draws an overdraft on tomorrow's security and joy. And he brings it into today and just kicks down the distress and discomfort that we should feel today into tomorrow. You see, it never ends. It just keeps going. And so he presents this illusion of security as though everything is sorted and everything is fine. But the truth is that actually nothing is fine. Nothing is sorted. You are just like an ostrich that has dipped his head in the sand and has decided that because I can't see anything, nothing is happening. Apathy is your enemy because it gives an illusion of security. But you see, apathy is your enemy also because it leads us to reactionary living. It leads us to reactionary living. And so there's a phrase that my grandma used to use um, when we were growing up in in Yoruba. This is where, honestly, I, I, I think more people should ask for the gift of interpretation of tongues. Because no matter how much I translate it, you never actually get the sense. But she would say something like this to us in Yoruba. She would say, ibiti e baba? And the idea is that stop moving around like you're a baba's chair. Have you seen a baba's chair before? There is a lot of motion, but no progress. You just turn to this place. Let's cut this part. Let's cut this. Let's cut this. And then you turn again. Let's cut this. Let's cut this. But the truth, actually, is that you're not going anywhere. You're just moving around. And what apathy does is that apathy locks us into this place where we think that we are secure, but actually what's happening is that there's a lot of reactionary living. This person has done this, so you have to react. That person has done it, so you have to react. There's a party here, so you have to go. There's something here, so you have to do all of these things. And you are locked into this lifestyle where all you are doing 24-7 is that you are just reacting to things and you are not actually responding or you are not envisioning the kind of life that you should be living. There's an illusion of security and actually leads to reactionary living. But third is that actually apathy keeps us away from what God has designed us for. And that's what we've been getting to in this series. That apathy keeps us away from what God has designed us for. And so in verse 2, remember, the whole point of this thing was that David actually wanted to show this guy loving kindness. He actually wanted to establish a relationship with him. And I don't know what would have happened. Maybe if this guy had responded in a humble and and appropriate manner to David, maybe, just maybe, if he had problems in his own life, David would have come along with him. Just maybe, of course, he wouldn't even need to be fighting this stupid war in the first place. But now, because of the apathy that is at work in his own life, he's now in a situation where he's missing out on what God has designed for him. He's missing out on the life that he could have lived. And friends, the truth is that when we lock ourselves in this state of apathy, when we're in this state of apathy, whether we're coasting, we're just drifting along, not putting in our energy, or we're actually slothful, not even putting in anything at all, what happens is that we're ultimately keeping ourselves away from what God has designed for us. There are some of us here, you know, you know. Maybe you even voted most likely to succeed when you're finishing secondary school, and you know. Yes, so there are village people. Yes, there are people who are after my life. Yes, there are people who have bad plans. But this place I am now is because of me. It's not not anybody that is doing me, I'm doing myself. Apathy ultimately keeps us away from the life that God has designed for us. And you see, when he does that, apathy ultimately wants to destroy us. And so really, that's what, that's what will eventually happen to this guy. Because now, instead of him responding in the way that he should have responded to the life that God designed for him, he now has to be fighting a stupid war that he didn't have any business fighting in the first place. And guess what? Uh, David usually wins. David usually wins. And you see, what apathy does is that apathy ultimately wants to distrust. Friends, apathy is your friend but it should be your enemy. And maybe some of us can actually see it in our lives. The fact that we weren't there for our loved ones, the fact that we weren't there for our kids, the fact that we weren't doing the things that we were supposed to do, the fact that we didn't do the things that we we're, were meant to do in our business. Now IRS is chasing you all around. What do they call them? Is IRS now. Is IRS now. Is IRS. Uh... Join me now, Is IRS. No, he's F-I-R-S. Whatever. Apathy ultimately aims to destroy. So how do we kill apathy, friends? How do we kill apathy? Very quickly, G-R-V-I. G-R-V-I. How do we kill apathy? I know some people say G-R-V. No, it's G-R-V-I. I. I is there. The first thing is that we must gospelize. Can we say that together? Gospelize. Gospelize. And by gospelize, I'm actually not forming that word. That is a word that is used in the Bible. The the idea is that you should be preaching the gospel to yourself. Particularly if you're a Christian. You see, when God saves us, and and I like this so much, when God saves us, God doesn't just transport us as he can. He doesn't put us on the Enoch Express. That just lifts us from earth to heaven and then we have a security eternally. No, what God saves us, why God saves us is that God has put us here to do things. In Ephesians chapter 2 verse verse 10, when after unpacking all the mystery of what God has done in salvation and how God has joined us to Christ and how God has seated us in heavenly places and how that our salvation is not actually because of anything we have done, He says we are God's workmanship. In Christ Jesus, created to do good works. You see, what happens is that when we are in this state of apathy, what what happens is that our gospel quotient is very low. There, There shouldn't be a Christian who is not aiming for more in life. There shouldn't be a Christian who you just see 10 years ago that is in the exact same place where they were 10 years ago. The gospel has everything to do with our ambition and our, and our desire to aim for more and become all that God has called us to do, gospelize. Yes, we should run away from prosperity theology. Yes, we should run away from thinking that actually this this earth is heaven. Yes, we should run away from all those things, but what should be happening is that the gospel should be shaping how we actually look at life now. The gospel should be shaping how we see the problems around us. The gospel should be motivating us to do something about it. And and thank God some of you are already in those spaces, in your NGOs and in your workplaces. The, 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 The reason is because you've seen there is a lack, there's a problem, there's something wrong with the world. And if I'm a citizen of another kingdom, how should should that reality affect my life in the here and now gospel lies. I sort of attach to that is that we should memorize scripture. If it is true, and I believe that it is true, that the that, that, that apathy is our friend, no matter how ambitious you think of yourself in one sphere of life, if it is true that the gospel actually changes us, then it means that we should be seeking constantly to kill the apathy, the remaining apathy that exists in our own lives memorize scripture. There are passages, plenty passages to actually memorize. In Proverbs chapter 15 verse 9 it says that the path of the slogan is blocked with thorns. In other words, you know go better for the slogan. That is not a, um, an Igbo proverb. That is not from C.S. Lewis. <laughs> That is from the Bible. <laughs> I like, I like dragging Toki every time. Like, in Curtis "CS Lewis, like, what do you have to say about this? The gospel actually has a lot to say about our ambition. So you gospelize, but also you must realize, you must realize that there are no neutral zones in life. There is no coasting. There is no neutral game in life. Some of us who who started driving with manual, you know that when you get to a slope, you're like, ah, let's save both my leg muscles and let's save some petrol. So you turn it off and then you put it in neutral and then the car is just gliding down and it's coasting down. There is nothing like that in life, friends. You are always in gear. You are always running. There is always something happening at each point. And you see, the earlier we realize that there is no coasting in life, the better for us one of the metaphors the bible uses about the world that we are in is that actually we are in a spiritual warfare we are in battle and if we belong to christ it means that the enemy is constantly going to be trying to attack us and if we don't want the enemy to succeed in the attacks against us we have to realize that there is no neutral zone so you gospelize you realize but also visualize visualize and this comes back to this vision thing maybe some of us don't have visions for our life maybe some of us don't know where we are headed beg god pray fast as in seek god's face like god what am i meant to be doing what should i be doing how should i be running the course of my life what should i be doing with my life visualize but also visualize what apathy can do to destroy you there is um, a Christian writer, a former pastor, but now a Christian writer who had a, has a book on sexual purity that I, I think is a really good book, and it's a very short one. Um, but then he, he says, so yes, there are God's promises, and how he keeps himself away from, you know, from lust and from sinning against God sexually. Um, but actually, what he also does in addition to that is that because sometimes, because sometimes our head is not always correct, because sometimes, and I don't mean any insult, but that's the truth. If you are in this flesh, if you, have, if you were born of, of human parents, your head is not always correct. Apathy fights us. And so sometimes that, that, that whole um, gospel thing doesn't always work as effectively as it should. And So what he has done is that he has visualized what will happen to himself and his family if he sins sexually against his wife. And so he has this list of things. And sometimes, too, when my head is not always correct, too, I just think, I have not practiced law for five years. If I mess up now, there's no job for me. <laughs> that, that is not even, like, there's no job. There's no job for me. I'm done. So, like, like, there is no point going down this path. But then, let's even say there is a job for me. What will happen to my kids? Like he's going to grow up in a home where his dad is not there. And dad is not there because daddy follows somebody else. But then, like these people that are here now, like what what will happen? I will now come back to church. You see, like, and grace is real. Grace is real. Like, we really love you, Emmanuel. We welcome you back. All of you love me, and you welcome me back, and, you know, extend arms of... It's like, man, that stuff is there. It's there. If I come and give you counsel tomorrow about how you should never be apathetic and how you shouldn't mess up, say, yeah, thanks, Emmanuel. <laughs> uh-huh, but um, also Visualize. Apathy always destroys us. If you submit to this thing, if you do this thing now, how is your life going to end up? You gospelize, you realize, you visualize, but you must initiate. And this is many times where a lot of us, myself included, we are deadlocked. We're like the slugger. Just bring your hand out from the plate and put it in your mouth. It's so hard. It's true. It's hard. But we have to fight it by the Spirit's power. We have to initiate. And part of what, what initiating means is that we must be proactive. Stephen Covey, in his book on the seven habits of highly effective people, what, what, the foundational habit of everything, and he says this in his book, the foundational habit of everything, the, the way everything is going to succeed is actually that you have to be proactive. Decide ahead. This is the life I want. You set goals, you create plans, you create systems, you invite other people, you tell people, hey, I know, I wrote that plan 10 years ago. I wrote that plan five years ago. I wrote that plan last year. I didn't do anything about it. So the solution is not just writing the plan. The solution now may be, I need to involve more people. The solution is that I need to ask more people to be involved in my life, you see. But what you are doing is that you are initiating, you've gospelized, you've realized, you've visualized what apathy can do to you. And because of all these things, now you have to take steps. Apathy is your friend, but it should be your enemy. And now let's see the third one. Taking risk is good. Taking risk is good. And so the battle rages on. Um, It turns out that Hanon did something right. He hired people that can actually fight. And so like this battle is really, really, really hard. Like, he's hard. like, And you know it's hard when somebody who has been fighting for as long as Joab, David's commander-in-chief, actually says, Omo, this battle is hard. You see that in verse 9. He says, in verse 9a in the ESV, he says that Joab saw that the battle was set against him both in front and in the rear. It means that this thing was tight. It means that it was hard. And so what does Joab do? Does Joab decide... Oh yeah, let's both Let's run away. Like this thing is too hard. It's too difficult. Not today, mama. Not today. No, that's not what he does. We're told that in verse 10, he takes the best warriors. He divides his company into two, basically. He takes the best warriors, puts some under himself, and then his brother Abishai, who is just as equally as good as himself, he takes another set and gives them to to, to Abishai. And so one person presumably is fighting at the front. The other person is fighting at the rear. You see, he decided that this time when the battle is hard is not a time for me to actually bolt and run away. This time that the battle is hard is actually a time for me to rise up to the task. And friends, many of us complain about what Nigeria looks like, how the world is hard and how things are difficult and how there was nobody there for us when we were growing up and how things didn't work out and how the economy is... And the person who is in government now is not the person you voted for and on and on and on and on and on But you see, what happens is that, what must happen is that actually you must rise up to the task. You must respond. Hardship is not a time for us to bolt and run away. Hardship is a time for us to rise up to the task. And so that is exactly what Joab does. But you may say, eh, but Joab did that because he knew they would win. To which I'll say, where? Where does the text tell us that? He actually doesn't know that they will win. In fact, what happens is that in verses 11 to 12, what we see, can we put that up, please, is that Joab says, basically, when he's divided and he's, he's, he's talking to Abishai, before Abishai goes off, he says, if the Arameans are too strong for me, they are to come to my rescue. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come to rescue you. You see, what he has done is that he has split the battle. But then in verse 12, he then says, be strong, and let us fight bravely. For our people and the cities of our God, the Lord will do what is good in his sight. He had no divine idea there was no revelation there was nothing but but job realized that man this thing we are fighting for is a good cause we don't bolt in the face of good causes we rise up to the task in the face of good causes and what that simply means that must be people who are willing to take risks Job realizes that if this thing doesn't happen, if we bolt and run away from this battlefront, if we bolt and run away and we don't rise up to the challenge, deliverance will not come like it's meant to. And so if deliverance is going to come, one thing we can be sure of is that if we run away, deliverance won't come. If we fight, deliverance may not come. But what we know is that if we don't fight, deliverance still won't come anyway. So why don't you just stand up and fight? And basically, this guy says that he is going to rise up to the task. He's going to take a risk. Do you see what happens, friends? Is that to actually live the life and become all that God has called us to be and to enter into the victories that he has for us, must be people who are willing to take risks. And so let's go back to that chapter we saw earlier. Ah. And so we're talking about coasting, and sloth. But you see, when our energy is high, even when we're not sure of the outcome, we take risks. And so risk here will be something that has to do with audacity. Risk here is you're not sure where it's going to turn out. You're not sure how things are going to to, to, um, happen anyway, but you take risks. But you see, when energy is high, and you are very sure of the outcome. We have what I call NHNE. Who knows what that is? 1,000 naira for you if you know what that is. That's two liters of petrol, oh, you people. Two liters. You are just draining the way like that. Okay now. I call it new heaven and new earth. In other words, in other words, there will never be a time in this life where you are absolutely high on energy and you are absolutely certain of the outcome. Never. Never. You see, what God does sometimes is that God sometimes allows us to taste of the, as, it, as the Bible talks about, we taste of the powers of the age to come. And so maybe some of you, some of you, let's, let's even just, let's even just do, do a random sampling. How many of us have been married for more than 10 years here? Yes, daddy. Thank you, sir. Can we just, can we celebrate them? Can we, can we celebrate them? The King Femi, thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. How many of you here were sure when you married, you were very sure, you were very, very sure that the person you married will never disappoint you? <laughs> Daddy, thank you, sir. Daddy, put down your hand. <laughs> How many of us were sure? No, like you can't be sure. Like you can say in your mind that, oh, I'm sure, like I know Kwalumi is a really good person. And she can say, like, I know Emmanuel is obviously an even better person. <laughs> right? But like you can't, you can't, you can't, like, you can't, you can't bank on it. You can't bank on, I've raised my children in the house of God. I've trained them in the way of God, and they will not turn away from following Christ. You can't bank on that. I'm starting this business, and I know that this business will succeed. I know that it will not fail. You can't bank on that. You see, the only time you can ever be absolutely sure that nothing bad will go wrong when we put in the effort is in the new heavens and the new earth. But you see, what happens is that when we step out in faith and we trust God, God allows us sometimes to taste of it. And so, the reason why you are sure if you've been married for 30, 40 years or more, the reason why you are sure that my my spouse will most likely not disappoint me is because you've been doing it for 5, 10, 15, 20 years. The reason why you are sure that this thing will go the way that I have designed it to go is because you've been doing it for a long time. You see, but what that whole venture started with was with taking risks. And here's my point to you this morning, in City Church, that you can never enter into all that God has designed for you. You cannot taste of the age to come if you don't take risks. If you don't say... God will do what is right with him. I trust God. I trust God to do what is right with him. But he hasn't told me anything. He hasn't guaranteed that I'll always have good health. He hasn't guaranteed that my kids will always be fine. He hasn't guaranteed that my business will not go under. He hasn't guaranteed that I will have kids. He hasn't guaranteed all these things. But I'll keep venturing out anyway. You see, biblical risk is ultimately a demonstration of faith. You see, many times we think of faith as the the size of, of the faith that we have. But you see, faith is not about the size of what you are trusting for. Faith is about the size of the person that you are looking to. Faith is ultimately a function of how much you believe God and how much you are willing to go out on a limb because you believe God. And so Joab is here. He doesn't know anything. He doesn't have any revelation. He doesn't have any idea about how this battle will turn out. But he knows that we can't turn back. And so he says, we are going to fight. but We are going to fight knowing that there is a God up there who, if he wills, if he decides, if he's willing to act, he will act in our favor. But turning back is not an option. And can I just challenge us this morning, friends? There are some of you here. God will never, sometimes, many times in his sovereignty, and because he knows the end better than all of us, God will not guarantee all the things that I want him to guarantee. But guess what? God will allow us to step into the water. And it is only when we step in, like children of Israel, that the water will begin to part. Let us take risks. Let us take risks because our risk is ultimately a demonstration of our faith in God. So many times I hear people talk about the sovereignty of God, the sovereignty of God, the sovereignty of God. The problem is that many of us believe more in the sovereignty of God than in a sovereign God. And what I mean by that is that many of us think of the sovereignty of God as a concept in our brain. We think of the sovereignty of God as this thing that keeps me from doing what I should do. This thing that we hedge our bets, right? Like when we are praying, God, you are a sovereign God. We know that we, we really want you to heal this person, Lord, but yeah, a sovereign. Just pray. Like, you feel you have to remind God that he's sovereign? No, you don't have to. You are functioning in his world. You are functioning in his world, in a world where there's gravity. And so if God has not forgotten, if he has not once forgotten that it is, this is his world, why do you think that you need to remind him again and again? Don't believe more in the sovereignty of God. Believe in a sovereign God who is disposed to act on our behalf. How can we cultivate this kind of risk-taking faith? One is that you must meditate on God. Meditate on God's power. Meditate on God's grace. Meditate on the Bible stories, friends. And we can go over and over and over again. In Daniel chapter 3, when the four Hebrew boys are about to be thrown into the lake of fire that Nebuchadnezzar had heated up, did they know God was going to turn out for them? Ish. Like, and they say to themselves, we know, we know King Nebuchadnezzar, our God is able to deliver us, so he's sovereign. But he may not be pleased right now to exercise that sovereignty. In, in, our, in, our, in, in our favor. But guess what? We are not going to bow anyway. And it is as though many times God is waiting for us to actually say that, Lord, I trust you. And because I trust you, I'm taking this step. And then he turns and, and supports us. And that is exactly what we see in this story that it is when those guys say, we are not bowing down, damn you Nebuchadnezzar, and they step into the fight, that then God shows up. Many times, friends, we will not see the victories that God has promised us. We will not see the life that God has designed for us. We will not become what God has designed for us if we don't take risks. Meditate on God. His counsel is constant. God is constant. God doesn't change, friends. And so apathy is your friend, but it should be your enemy. Taking risk is good, and you can be sure that it will succeed. And so maybe you've heard me say, um, yeah, like, what actually enables us to take risk is the fact that we serve a powerful God, a sovereign God, a God who can do anything, like we see with Joab and Israel and the fight against the Ammonites and how ultimately as we see in this story that the people of Israel ultimately win. I say yes, 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 Emmanuel I know all of those things is true but I just I still have a problem because you have said that it may not succeed like this venture may ultimately not work out if God doesn't exercise his favor in my regard. So how do I know, how do I know that this risk is worth taking anyway? And I'll say, you're right. If all we have is the fact that God is sovereign, that doesn't comfort us because we don't know whether he will exercise that sovereignty on our behalf. I read the Quran about two years ago, parts of the Quran about two years ago. And I was, initially, my gut reaction was I was afraid. Like, Omo, Allah is powerful. Allah is really, really powerful. Like, he's really, really sovereign. And so, if ultimately that is our hope, if, if, if that is all that we have, you're right, we don't know that he will exercise his sovereignty on our behalf. Or maybe some of you might be saying, yes, Emmanuel, I get what you say about the fact that, yes, God's counsel doesn't change and, and God's counsel is, is constant. But if that's all we have, how do we know that God is not just a rigid God that is guiding us along the path that he wants for us? And, you know, he's just this very robotic God that everything is just going a certain way. How do we know that we can succeed when we take risks? Remember I said that the 2 Samuel chapter 9 and 10 are really comparisons of how we respond to God. And you see, the ultimate key that guarantees the fact that we can make successes of our risks, even when it appears that it is failing, even when it appears that things aren't working out, is in this passage. And she's that word that I was talking about at the beginning loving kindness, kindness, has said. And so, in chapter 9, verse 1, in contrast to chapter 10, what has happened now is that David is on the throne. He's reigning as king and he remembers. He's like, ah, oh, there was this guy who was king before me, Saul. But, but, but Saul had a son that I really, really loved, Jonathan. And so he asks in chapter 9 verse 1, he says, Is there anyone left of the house of Saul to whom I can show hesed for Jonathan's sake? And so they ask around, they run around, they ask. And so someone comes named Ziba, who was a servant of Saul, in verse 3. He says that, yes, my Lord, there is a son of Jonathan, but he's lame in both feet. And you see, this son of Jonathan, his name was Mephibosheth. In chapter 4, we are told that this guy, when he was five years old, there was fear of what may happen, there was a battle and so somebody, his nurse, the maid that he had sort of outsourced things to, saw him and scooped him up and carried him and was running, but somehow Mephibosheth fell. You see, someone took a risk on behalf of Mephibosheth and he failed. Someone carried Mephibosheth in his arms and, and, and scooped Mephibosheth up, but somehow that thing failed and Mephibosheth was suffering for the failure of that risk. And maybe there's somebody here, you are suffering for the failure of the risk. Or maybe you are you are not taking risk because you are afraid that, 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 that it may not succeed. You look around here, you see people who are taking risk. <laughs> These people are lame in both feet. These people are suffering. These people are suffering because the risk didn't work out. But you see in verse 7, friends, and here is the good news. In verse 7, it says to Mephibosheth, who is now afraid... He says, I will surely show you kindness. Not for your sake, Mephibosheth, because you are lame in both feet. Not for your sake, Mephibosheth, because I don't know you. Not for your sake, Mephibosheth, because you haven't done anything. In fact, you are incapable of doing anything. You see, I will show you kindness. I will show you he said, I will extend the reality of this covenant that I had with your father to you. Why? For the sake of your father, Jonathan. And friends, this is the entire gospel in one, in one whole verse. That you see, we were people who had taken risks. People who maybe we are suffering for the risk that other people have taken on our behalf. Maybe we had taken risk and it failed and now we are suffering for those things. We are lame in both feet, but Jesus comes. God comes to us in the person of Jesus and says, is there anybody in City Church? Is there anybody alive? Is there anybody right now that I can show loving kindness? Not for your sake, not because you are good, not because you have good dreams, not because you are most likely to succeed, but for the sake of Jonathan, for the sake of Jesus. How do we know that will ultimately succeed? Is that there was someone else who ultimately succeeded? You see, Jesus Christ, like we said last week, Jesus Christ ventured into the world. Jesus Christ ventured into a place that didn't love him. In fact, one of the parables the Bible talks about and uses is that there was somebody who came, he took a risk and he came to his people and instead of people listening to his his words, what he did was that they stoned him and they killed him. You see... Jesus took a risk on our behalf in a place where it seemed like he may not have succeeded. And because Jesus Christ succeeded, because Jesus Christ stood in our stead before God the Father, now we can come like Mephibosheth and say, I am your servant. We can receive God's loving kindness. And if that was all, friends, that would be good enough, you see. But in the second part of verse 7, in 7b... He says, can we have that up? I'll just read it. He says, I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, saw, And you will always eat at my table. This guy who was lame in both feet. This guy who couldn't make a success of his life. This guy who... Who, who, who a risk was taken on his behalf and he failed now because of his father because of the covenant relationship his father had with king david now he not only just enjoys the benefits of his life being spared but now there is a restoration of all that was lost he says all that was lost, all that you didn't have, all that was taken away, I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather's soul. And friends, maybe some of you are here this morning, you're like, man, you might have blown it. Men have been apathetic. Men haven't taken the best decisions. Yes, I haven't taken risks. Or maybe my, my, the risk didn't succeed. But here is the good news, friends, that God not only welcomes us in, but God restores. I pray that there will be a restoration for you this morning. I pray that all the things that you have lost, the Lord will restore. I pray that as you gospelize and see the reality of all that God has done for us in the gospel, that it doesn't keep you down, but it drives you out. Knowing that because you have the approval of the Father, because the Father has welcomed you in, because he has invited you in not because of yourself, but because of his Son Jesus Christ, like me, people should now you yeah, are welcome to the table. Apathy is your friend, but it should be your enemy. Taking risk is good, and you can be sure that it will succeed because there is one who has gone ahead of us..
0: Thanks for listening. If you found this sermon helpful, we hope you join us in the mission of renewing Lagos with the gospel by sharing it, rating this podcast and following us. These actions help us reach more people with the gospel. You can also connect with us on various social media platforms via the handle at City Church Lagos. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos.